Well, good morning, and uh, this morning we're uh, going to step into uh, a problem going in a little bit deeper than I usually do, so <laughs> we really need some experts up here, but you're going to get me this morning, and we're going to deal a little bit with the, uh, we'll get Romeo to back me up, okay, Romeo? All right, if, let me, if I start going astray, you hook me up, all right? <laughs> all right, well. All righty, good. Well, this morning we had the privilege of, uh, of considering the tabernacle, and um, I'm going to, uh, to the best of my effort, talk about the uh, first two elements that you'll see when you walk into the tabernacle. Uh, and we're going to talk about two items, uh, the, um, <clears throat> the altar, the altar of sacrifice, where the burnt offering was made, and the laver, uh, which was where the priests would wash their hands and wash their feet prior to entering into uh, the Holy of Holies. And if you'll open your Bibles with me to Exodus, to Exodus, and we're going to look at two passages concerning these, and uh, we'll get a little bit of background, and then we're going to see where they fit, first of all, where they fit in the ancient mind of the people that are actually being committed to building the tabernacle, where they fit into their mind and their lives, as well as where it fits into our own lives, right? And, and how relevant it is to us here this, uh, today and in our lives. So if you'll, we'll look at two passages. The first one concerning the uh, altar, will be in Leviticus chapter 27. <clears throat> Leviticus chapter 27, and this is the command of the Lord given to Moses, and then he would reiterate it to the uh, children of Israel. Concerning the, the bronze altar, or the altar of sacrifice in Genesis, or Exodus, I'm sorry, chapter 27, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through the first eight verses. It says that uh, you shall make an altar of uh, acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide, and the altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners, its horns shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze, and you shall make its pans uh, to receive its ashes and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans, and you shall make all its utensils of bronze. Verse 4, you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze, and on the network you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. You shall make the poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. And the poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides, and the altar to bear it. You shall make it, hall you shall make it hallow with boards, as it, was sown, as it was shown you on the mountain, so shall they make it. And this is the instruction that the Lord would give Moses regarding the altar. Now let's take a look at the uh, labor, which is going to be a little bit later in Exodus chapter 30. <clears throat> 
in Exodus chapter 30 and go down to verse 18 or actually verse 17. And it says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, uh, You shall also make a laver of bronze and its base also of bronze for washing. And you shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. And you shall put water in it, for Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it. When they go into the tabernacle of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water, lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet, lest they die. And it shall be a statue forever to them, and to him and his descendants throughout the generations. Now there's quite a few ways that we could approach this. Some have approached this by looking at the utensils or the furniture and, and just describing it and tearing it apart and, and trying to get the nuance of all of the deep meanings. And that uh, brochure by our brother, uh, Randy Amos, is a very nice, clear, concise picture. I think he really sums up uh, the furniture in a very good way. We're not going to do that this morning. This morning, what we want to do, my goal is to first look and see what was in the minds of the people, these ancient people, when the, when the tabernacle was erected in the midst of them. What did it bring to their mind? What, what did they think? When, and how did it affect them? in their lives. And then the next thing we're going to talk about is how is, what does it do for us and what does it mean for us? Is there relevance for us, this Old Testament? Is there Old Testament symbolism for a New Testament world? All right? And so that's what we're going to try to do. And I think first of all, we'll, um, and by the way, I, I, last week we got together and there was an introduction to the tabernacle, and one thing I think that really pointed out to me, and, and I didn't, hadn't saw it up to this, and I think Rex brought it out, um, how the tabernacle, when the instructions were given to it, how it was put together. And it would start from the ark, which was the innermost part of the tabernacle. It was the heart of the tabernacle. And then it would go from there out. And he kind of communicated that in our world, when we construct something, we don't normally start from the inside, do we? We go, we lay the foundation. And a long time ago, I did construction, and I still remember. You lay the foundation, and then you put up the, the, block, the block, the outside walls. And then you put up the inside walls, and then you put up the roof, and you know, it, but primarily it starts from the outside, right? And the Old Testament is kind of like that. The Old Testament is about external things, right? But when it comes to the tabernacle, it starts with the inside. And it reminded me of that passage that says that men look on the outward appearance, right? But where does God look? He looks from the inside. That's right. He looks on the inside. And what a good explanation that is of how this was developed. So my first question, what did the tabernacle mean to those ancient people of the Bible? What did it mean to them? What, what did they think when they saw it? And I think to get an understanding, we're just going to backtrack a little bit 
uh, I did, and I just appreciate the, brother, the brethren who have done this research for me in many ways, and I've been able to glean from them and pick out some things to, to uh, uh, communicate these powerful truths, right? So what did it mean to the ancient people of the Bible? And to, to do this, we want to backtrack and get maybe uh, take a historical journey of how the tabernacle comes into the scene. Okay, And in order to do that, we're going to go all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. And of course, we've already covered this in the past, um, but this is just to, to help us to cognate uh, how God would bring the tabernacle in. In Exodus chapter 12, we have that very familiar passage, that very uh, familiar story of the Passover. And we all know, uh, we're not going to read a whole lot of it, but just to know this there, we know that the children of Israel, after uh, being in Israel for some 430 years, that they had become slaves and they had lived under the burden and the bondage of Egypt and the Pharaoh. They were slaves to Pharaoh. And the story goes on to explain how God would redeem them. And how did God redeem them? We talked about this here before. He redeemed them in two ways, right? In Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, we read this. Exodus chapter 12 and verse 13, we read, Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, when I see the blood, I will pass over you and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. First of all, God would redeem the children of Israel from the wrath of God, from his wrath. It didn't really matter whether you were Jewish or Gentile or Egyptian or whatever your nationality was. If God were to pass over your house and you didn't have the blood on your doorposts and on the lintel, then death, the wrath of God, would be expressed on that household. It didn't matter who you were. God had a specific design. So the first thing we said was that God redeemed Israel from his own wrath. Right? And then God would redeem them in a second way. Turn over to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14. And we know the story that after the plagues and the final play of the death of the firstborn, that Pharaoh would finally let the people go, and they would go. But then not long after, the people were on their journey. Pharaoh would relent, and he would say, oh, no, all my labor force is gone. Why did I do this? And then he would begin to pursue them, and Pharaoh would pursue them. And so there was another challenge of redeeming the children of Israel. Um, maybe a challenge isn't the right word, but uh, the, the children of Israel were doomed again. This time it wasn't from the wrath of God because God already redeemed them. This time it was from the power of Pharaoh. And Pharaoh would chase after them. And in Exodus chapter 14, we read in verse 30 that God, or before that, that God would prepare a way. He would open the sea. The children of Israel would pass through. The children of Israel would go through, and they would reach the other shore. But those soldiers of Pharaoh would enter in, and it says in verse 30, 
that the Lord saved Israel that day out of the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead upon the seashore. So we see that God has redeemed them in two ways, right? First, from his wrath, and second, from the power of Pharaoh. And this redeeming work, it's important, because what was the purpose? Why was God redeeming Israel? You know, what was the goal of Israel's redemption, one brother would ask. And I think that some people would say, as it says in Exodus, and God promised in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 8, the Lord would promise them and he would say, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land and a large land unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Was that the purpose? Did God redeem Israel from his wrath and from the power of Pharaoh so that they could enter into a promised land and have milk and honey and build big houses and established institutions and have big families and feasts? Was that the purpose of redeeming Israel? Was that the goal of redemption? I think not, because... Later on, as we travel through this history in uh, Exodus chapter 19, in extra, chapter 19 and verse 4, we, it, is, it is told to us why God would redeem Israel. What the work of redemption, the purpose and the goal of redemption is, it's seen in Exodus chapter 19 and verse 4. And it says, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and did what? And brought you to myself. The purpose of the redeeming Israel, why God would redeem Israel, would to bring them to himself. Right? He brought them. And in this, God would make them a proposition. If you continue to read down in verse 5, it says, Now, therefore, God would propose to them. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you should be a special treasure. You'll be a special treasure to me above all people, for all the earth is mine. In verse 6, he says, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which you shall speak to the children of Israel. So the purpose of redemption was to bring a people to God himself for a people to be a kingdom of priests. And what did priests do? They served and they offered sacrifices to God. That was the whole purpose. And the covenant that God would make with them, we can see as we continue on in our journey, we see that, that Moses would go up into the mountain and God would institute, give him all the institutions of what the kingdom, what's involved in the kingdom life. And then we come all the way over to Exodus chapter 25. And we look at verse 8. And God would say, if you obey my covenant, if you obey my commands, right, I will make you a special nation. You will be, you will be, kingdom a kingdom of priests and in verse chapter 25 verse 8 he was he would say and let them make me a what 
a sanctuary that I may what? That I may dwell with them, that I may, the word there would be tabernacle, that I may dwell and I will tabernacle. Now, this is where the tabernacle fitted into the experience of the children of Israel. This is the history that would lead up to where we are today. The goal of the redemption of Israel was to free these people from the wrath of God and from the tyranny and from the pressure and the oppression of Pharaoh, right? They would be ultimately free. They would be free to worship God. They would be God's people. And God would dwell among them. And that's so much more than a land flowing with milk and honey. That's so much more. They would act as a kingdom of priests to God. The tabernacle, as the Lord would describe it and institute to Moses, would ultimately be an illustration of spiritual lessons. It's more than just a building. There's more to it. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, it says, those who serve unto the, they serve unto the example and the shadow of heavenly things. The tabernacle was an example of heavenly things. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Where? Where? On earth as it is in heaven. And the tabernacle was much like that. It was a picture of God's kingdom in heaven. And, and so we see that, that, that the tabernacle was designed as an illustration of spiritual things, of a deeper lesson. And that Exodus chapter 25 in verse 40, we read, And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. It's very specific. And when you look at the ingredients and you look at the life and the mandate, as it were, and I really think that this experience here was uh, maybe parallel with the Sermon on the Mount in a lot of ways. But to the children of Israel and to an external experience, an external experience of what the kingdom of God was like. The parallel in the Sermon on the Mount is the mandate to the children of God and what the, it, what the internal kingdom of God is like, right? On the inside, bringing heaven to earth in our own life. Anyhow, that's for another time. So, finally, the, um, and by the way, the uh, tabernacle almost didn't get erected. It almost didn't get built, when you think about it, because if you look at the next uh, uh, few chapters, and there's the, the, the Lord would describe to them all of the things that he would want in the tabernacle, and the way that it was to be set up, and, and how you entered, and what you did, and you get over all the way over here into chapter 32, and Moses is up on the mountain. The tabernacle hasn't been erected yet. And Moses is up on the mountain, and Moses is communing with God, 
And the children of Israel are down there waiting for Moses to come down. And the Lord turns to Moses in, in, in chapter 32 and verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go and get down for your people whom you, bought out, who you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. And God would become furious with the people wanting to consume them. Of course, Moses would plead with God. And God would relent, but God would say, Okay, Moses, you want to keep these people? You want to keep these people? Well, you can go into the promised land, but I'm not going with you. Right? I'm not going to go with you. And how would you like that? How would you like to get to heaven? And have heaven is a wonderful place filled with glory and grace. And you got a mansion there. And you got all the patriarchs of history there and gold streets but Jesus isn't there would it be worth anything I don't think so so Moses would lead the people and God would would dwell with them but now he would dwell in the tabernacle so ultimately the tabernacle was erected it was built and it was an experience it was a it was a reminder to the children of Israel. It was an illustration. And I don't know if they really thought about it or not. You know, it's kind of like we go to church week after week, and we get kind of familiar with our Christianity, don't we? You know, it was the same with them, I think, in a lot of ways. And even in their journey, you know, they didn't realize what it was all about, what their redemption was about. I really think that, Many of them felt like their redemption was the promised land. And some of us are like that too, right? We come to Christ and we expect what? Give me this, give me that. Give me this, help me this, right? It's, it's physical, it's more than that. So <clears throat> the tabernacle is erected and it's an illustration of spiritual things. You look at the tabernacle, I was going to talk about the curtains, but we won't. But it, just briefly, to let you know, the curtains that surrounded it were there to remind the people that you didn't just access God anyway. You didn't just come to him any way you want. That you were separated from God. There was a separation, right? But by the grace of God, there was access but it was on his terms. And there was a door where the priests would come in, and when they go in through that door, the first thing they would see would be that altar, would be that altar where sacrifices were made continually. Sacrifices and offerings for sin was made. And then as they would enter past there, it would be that labor where they would wash their hands and their feet. And there's Ill spiritual illustrations there that you cannot enter into the courtyard of God without a sacrifice. Sacrifice was required before you pass through, before you pass there, right? And then later on, after that sacrifice was made, there was a washing. And I love the way our brother Gooding says it, that it was a double cleansing. It was a double cleansing. There were two types of cleansing when you entered into that court, that first court. 
a double cleansing. There was blood and there was water. And we see the blood was shed for salvation. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sin. So the blood was shed for our salvation. But once salvation is made and it's satisfied, you're complete. The water is there for the washing and the purifying for service. A double cleansing. Some people would say, well, I confessed Christ and I prayed a prayer and that was it. I don't need to change my life. I don't need to clean up. Well, according to this illustration, there needs to be a double cleansing. So real quickly, let's look first at the article or at the altar of sacrifice. We're going to look at the blood. Okay, turn with me. If you, turn with me, if you would, for a contrast to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. What did the, we, we already talked about what these people would think as they were involved with the tabernacle, but what does it mean to us? What does it mean to us? Hebrews chapter 10. Let's just read this passage from verse 4. It says, from verse 4, we'll read from 4 to 10. It says, For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. And that's what they were doing, right? They were offering the blood of bulls and goats. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrificing or sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offering and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do what? To do thy will, O God. Previously saying sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and offering for sin, you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. That will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ, of the body of Christ Jesus once and for all. So what's the difference between the offering of bulls and goats and the offering of Christ? They're both blood, right? They're both blood, and blood, I think, is symbolic of life, because life is in the blood, right? So what makes the difference between the two? I think that, you know, the first thing that we would have to think of, and in our age, I don't know if everybody really thinks this, but um, what does an animal know about sin? You know, we have a dog, right? And I like to take it alligator hunting one time. No, only kidding. I'm kind of mean. But my wife seems to think that the dog has a disposition. She says, oh, Rocky has an attitude. I'm like, well, I have an attitude adjuster, right? And the fact of the matter is, what does an animal know? What can an animal possibly know about sin? You know, the contrast is that human beings are involved with sin. We know what sin is. And in the deepest part, no matter how much we try to neglect it, 
we recognize that sin is a violation against God's law, right? It's a violation against, you know, the world will try to ignore it. The world will say, sin, what is it? There's no such thing as sin. And then they'll justify it by saying, well, that's kind of just the way that I am, right? And you know what you do when you do that? You start to live like a what? Like an animal, instinctively, right? When the fact of the matter is, sin does affect us. And to, to, to neglect it is to say, the reason why they neglect it is to deny that there is a relationship with God, right? To acknowledge sin is to admit that there is a relationship with God and man, right? People today... And even in, even in Moses' day, they lifted up what? The golden what? Calf. And today they try to lift up animals. Why? To justify their sin. So what does an animal know about sin? What does he know about the law of God? And, you know, to be human, to be truly human, according to the scriptures, to be truly human is to be in a relationship with God. It's... We are made in the image of God. That makes us responsible to God. That makes us responsible to do his will. To do his will and his purpose. And when I sin, because I'm made in the image of God, my conscience is bothered. Now, we can get to the point, Romans chapter 2 tells us, where we what? With our conscience. We sear our conscience, right? There is that possibility, but we weren't created like that. And so Christ didn't come in the body of an animal, but he came in a human body, right? He came in a human body, and that's the distinction. And his sacrifice was a sacrifice that could satisfy the law of God, right? The sacrifice of those bulls and goats had to what? He brought back over and over again. Hebrews chapter 10, we're there in verse 9. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 9 says, Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the, the first, that he may establish the second. Right? And then in verse 10 we read, By that will, by that will, whose will? By God's will, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering, the body of the body of Christ Jesus, once and for all. So we see the difference there, right? That was the difference. And the sacrifice of animals, we've already mentioned it, was many. Christ was once. Look at verse 11. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can what? Never take away sins. It can never take away sin. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of God. Why is it important that the sacrifice of Christ was once and once and for all? What's the difference? Why were 
the animal sacrifices repeated? Look, go back to verse 1, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually year after year, make those who approach perfect. Okay, we're going to talk about being made perfect. The, the, the offering of the goats and the bulls could not make you perfect. Perfect how? What does it mean cannot make you perfect? Turn back to chapter 9. Chapter 9 and verse 9. I'm going to breeze through this quickly. And we're talking about the, we're talking about the altar and its reference to satisfying sin. It says in verse 9, it was symbolic for the present time, talking about what was happening before, it was a symbol for now. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect, right? We just got done saying they couldn't make them perfect. How do they make them perfect? Look at this next statement. In regard to the conscience. Right? That's why it's not, that's why it can't, the, the offering of bulls and goats can't satisfy. Because, because you have to keep bringing it back over and over again. Look at, back, go back to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 1. It says, For the law having a shadow of good things and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. Perfect in the sense as pertaining to our conscience, it says in verse, chapter 9, verse 9. When we talk about making people perfect in this sense, when we talk about making them perfect in this sense, we're thinking of our conscience. And, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? Suppose that the law was able to make men perfect as pertaining to conscience. Then what would happen? Look in verse 2, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 2. For then... Would they, not have ceased, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers once purified would have had no more conscience, right, of sin. Stay with me here, okay? It says they wouldn't, they, 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 they wouldn't need to do it because they could satisfy the conscience, but they couldn't, so it was a continual sacrifice. And look at verse 3. This will kind of hopefully bring it together for us. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. And this term here is, it's a, it's a legal term. It's a remembrance of sin. And it's not that you forgot. It's not that God forgot you sinned and then all of a sudden remembered you sinned, right? But it's a judicial thing. And this happened once a year. That the judge would open the books. And when he would open the books, he would say, here's jo jo Jane Doe's name, and she violated my laws here, and she committed sin, and justice would be taken, and that person would have to satisfy that debt. That's the idea. It says here, but in those sacrifices, in the sacrifices of the animals, right, it was a reminder and so they would bring the animal, 
and they would bring it to the priest, and the priest would take the parts that needed to be uh, sacrificed, and the priest would sacrifice it, and, and God would receive it, and they were free to go another year because God would receive that sacrifice. And that's how the children of Israel had to deal with it. And what was the result? In chapter 9, verse 9, go back to it. It says, it was a figure for that time then present in which were offered gifts and sacrifices that could not, they could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. And what I'm going to say is do this. Show me a man who continues to make sacrifices. And I'll show you a man who has not been made perfect in his conscience. Do you come to church each Sunday to make a sacrifice to God? Do you do good deeds? I talked to the baseball coach and I says, well, how do you know if your relationship is good with God? He says, well, you know, I do good to people and, and I don't, try not to hurt anybody. That's not good enough. God doesn't, those sacrifices, though they may be good, they don't perfect us. Now, Christ, through Christ, and him alone, our conscience can be made perfect. And that's the gospel, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And why doesn't the sacrifice of God need to be made time and time again? Go back to verse 14, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14. For by one offering, he has what? Perfected. How long? How long did he perfect it? What's that next word? Forever. Those who are being what? Sanctified, right? For by one offering, he has protected. He has perfected forever them that are being sanctified. There is the covenant that, and he says, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord I will put my laws into their hearts, in their minds will I write them. And what does it say in verse 17? And their sins and iniquities, what? Will I remember when? No more. Your conscience is made perfect. Now that doesn't mean you don't sin anymore, right? But it means when you do sin, you have an advocate with the Father. You have an advocate with the Father. Christ makes our conscience perfect. Do you know why I don't come with sacrifices year after year? Because I have complete forgiveness in Christ Jesus. And that's the gospel. The blood of Christ cleanses us from the guilt of our bad deeds. And believe me, your bad deeds don't stop it, who you may do them against. They go all the way to the throne of God because he's the creator, right? So the blood sacrifice satisfies the guilt for my bad deeds and our conscience is, is cleaned and is made pure. But what will clean the evil desires and the malicious things that rage in my own heart. What's going to clean that? 
And we'll talk about that tonight. That's the second cleansing. You see, now we've gone past the altar of sacrifice and we go to the laver of water. You see, God began to teach the Israelites many, many spiritual things here. Forgiveness of sins, the holiness of God, the glory of God. And our first need, our first and most important need is to be saved from what? The wrath of God. Is to be saved from the wrath of God. And we're saved through the blood of Jesus Christ from the wrath of God. And though our conscience is cleansed from guilt, and we're now tonight going to consider how we go on living after that. What do we do after we're saved from the guilt of our bad deeds? You know, it does matter how we go on living, right? It matters. It mattered to the Israelites, and it matters to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for these great illustrations that reveal to us a redeeming work that the scriptures tell us was in the mind of God before the foundation of the world. This is a redeeming work that in so many ways reveals a glorified and a wonderful God. This is a redeeming work that reveals a forgiving and a loving God. This is a redeeming work that shows us how you would deliver us, how you would perfect us. We don't come with bulls and goats anymore. But today we come with the blood of Christ redeeming us from our own bad deeds. In Jesus' name we pray. We thank you.